0: Welcome to The Summit. My name is Jeremy Terman with your co-host, Andrew March, and here at The Summit, we uncover the true drive and motivation that makes people successful. We get to talk with amazing individuals to break down how they define success for themselves, how they choose their goals, and their decision-making processes as they climb their mountains. On today's episode, we do want to thank our sponsor, FitzBee, an athleisure company designed to re-inspire and further facilitate your on-the-go lifestyle. Check out Fitspeed at fitspeed.com, F-I-T-S-P-I.com and use code THESUMMIT30 for 30% off.
1: Welcome to the summit. We are incredibly enthusiastic and we're excited to have Susan Liu with us, who is a principal at a leading venture capital firm called Scale Venture Partners. And she has an amazing set of accomplishments so far in her career as a young professional. And one of those is a Forbes 30 under 30 for venture capital in 2018. So very exciting. And she has been a venture investor for some time. And she has backed some very fantastic companies, including Lever, Namely, Textio, TalkIQ, and numerous others. And if that doesn't ring a bell, you don't know who those are. Just know that they're really amazing companies. Um, She started her career in investment banking, which is where Susan and I met. And she's a thoughtful, genuine person, and she's up to some very exciting things. And so without further ado, Susan, welcome to the summit. Thank you. So
2: Excited to be here.
1: We're excited to have you. So, you know, one of the questions that we you know, ask people and what the summit is really all about is really uncovering the true drive and motivation behind successful people and everybody defines success a little bit differently. And that's really important. And we want to understand how people define success. And so with that being said, you know, what is, um, the most important goal or mountain to you right now? And, you know, how are you working towards that?
2: Sure. Um, That is a really good question and something that I've been thinking about, especially given all the time that we have with COVID. Um, So I'd say like success to me, I kind of define it on a couple of different, you know, a couple of different variables. So I think there's success in my personal life, which is um, making sure I have really good relationships with my friends and family, like basically people that I care about. Um, Having come from investment banking, there's a period of time where like, I didn't spend as much time developing there and it can really have an impact on your psyche. So that to me is really important. And I wanna make sure that I'm able to maintain those relationships over time. I mean, of course with COVID it's much harder because we can't go and see each other in person. So I think it's pretty crucial right now to just make sure that, you know, like you're texting people, having uh, Zoom catch ups things like that. But I'd say like on the personal front, that's super important to me. On the professional front, I would say, the goal for me as a venture capitalist is to invest in the best companies, right? So that to me is success. If we can invest in a company that really changes the game in terms of what they build, um, as well as, of course, you know, we are VCs after all. I want it to be game changing for our fund as well. So what that means is that, you know, again, we're investing in the best companies that are building the most insane products that will hopefully have, a huge exit, meaning like a big IPO or something like that. So really investing in companies that are changing the game and changing the world.
0: That's fantastic. For those that don't uh, understand VCs, I think you did uh, describe a little bit of a background, but just give a little bit about the, the environment that you sit in today.
2: Yeah. So, um, so I mean, in venture capital, we're investing in early stage startups, right? And um, in terms of the environment, um, you know, I would say when COVID first started, um, there was, there was a bit of a pause, meaning like a lot of companies were trying to figure out like, hey, like, what do we do? Like, you know, COVID, COVID is here, it shut down a lot of our offices. The whole world has kind of changed. Like, what does it mean for our company? So I'd say like the first couple of months of COVID, it was all about making sure the company is okay, which means making sure there's enough capital to continue running the company, right? That's super important. And then I'd say the second part was really like planning for the future. So COVID's here. It's impacting everything in our business. Like, you know, for a lot of companies, sales slowed. For a few lucky companies, it didn't. Like, if anything, it actually made their business better. Um, actually, DoorDash might be one of those. I'm not sure. You probably know better than me. Um, but I'd say like, you know, like the first few months of COVID, it's all about like making sure the business wasn't a good place. And now I'd say like, you know, the deal flow is kind of picking back up because I think a lot of entrepreneurs have realized that um, COVID's here for a while. We need to continue on with business, which means we have to raise capital. And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs are kind of picking back up and having conversations with VCs to get funding so that they could continue investing in their business. Um, Usually I'd say August is pretty slow because they assume a lot of VCs are on vacation. But this year it's, you know, a lot of companies are raising, I'm getting a lot of pings which is very different from like the last couple of years I've been doing venture.
1: Absolutely. And so you had, you had mentioned, you know, having a background in investment banking, there was a time when um, that career and the demands of that career had impacted relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why have those relationships kind of come back into focus, you know, as you've moved through your career and you know, why, why do they mean so much to you?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think when you're younger, you, your priorities are different, right? Like, at least for me, when I first started off in my career, I was hyper-focused on my career because, you know, I wanted to make sure I did really well. And unfortunately, the the thing that kind of, you can't have, like, look, like you can't have everything in life, right? I forget there's, you know, I can't remember who said this, but like there's someone who's had this famous saying where you can only have like a couple of things in life and you have to pick like three out of the five or something like that. I can't remember exactly. Um, But for me, like, you know, because I wanted to do well in work, relationships became the things that I kind of took for granted, because I had already built up a really good relationship with my family and my friends, etc. I figured like, hey, like, it might not matter if we kind of let this go for a little bit and then like come back to it later. The hard part is, is that when work is hard, it's really hard not to have that support system. And so I actually do think in order to live a balanced life, like those relationships are really important. Um, It's really easy to skew one way or the other, especially if you're super ambitious and you want to do really well in work. But at the end, at the end of the day, like if you want to live a balanced life, it's something that's really important, at least to me.
0: Yeah, I I share those same sentiments uh, at DoorDash. And I love advising small startups on the side as well. And you feel that tendency to just overcommit and then Mm -hmm. unbalance the scale and say, it's so exciting. And if I don't touch this, or if if I don't, keep saying on it, it's going to lose its steam. And you feel that like sense of urgency, especially from a startup standpoint that like every day and every hour, if it's not capitalized on is lost. And if you're trying to grow something you never want to slow momentum. So how Mm -hmm. did you help? Like what helped you understand? And maybe it was leaving the industry that, okay, wow, I need to take a second. My priorities are way off right now.
2: Yeah, it is really hard. Um, I'd say, I don't know. Well, in venture, I can't say I work less than banking. Well, maybe the hours are not as crazy as banking um, when you, when you first start off. But the the hard part about venture is that you can always work forever, which is actually very similar to what a lot of startup founders or operators must feel because you could always be building your business, right? Like I could always talk to more companies. I could always do more research on markets. Um, It will always be productive, right? Um, The hard part is pulling back and, what made me realize that I had to pull back was that I was starting to get burnt out, you know, and that's really tough because like as much as I wanted to be more productive, I just couldn't because I was so burnt out. And so then I realized I really have to prioritize my mental health. Right. And part of that is also keeping relationships with people that I care about, because if you're, I think if you're, if you spend all your time working while it is productive at the end of the day, like, you know, if you're burnt out, you're just not going to get anything done. And so like you do have, I I actually, for me, for me personally, I have to proactively carve out time in my day because otherwise I'll keep working forever. So what I do now is um, I'll set a time where I stop working. It could be nine, it could be 10 p.m. And then I just, you know, I stop, I take a break or like I'll carve out time to exercise. Like I think, you know, the thing that I found that has been the most helpful for me in the last couple of years is exercising. Like now I take 30 minutes to run. It's not a lot of time, but it really helps me reset. And if anything, I think it—you know—it helps me kind of get my creative juices going, and help, it forces because I'm stepping out of my work environment, it forces me to think about problems a little bit differently. So that break actually ends up being a lot helpful, a lot more helpful to problem solving than if I were not to take that break.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you guys feel the same way. Absolutely. I mean, there—that's that, mm-hmm. a phenomenal insight, <clears throat> you know. And sometimes there is a challenge where just because you're not "quote unquote" working. Um, it feels like you're not working, but in actuality, um, you know, it is, it's, it's additive to what you're doing. You know, it's mm-hmm. not taking away by giving you that space to think. Um, but you know, th- I'll share this with you. There's a quote <clears throat> by, by Ray Dalio that goes to your, you know, pick three out of the five, which is yeah. you can have virtually anything you want in life, but not everything. Mm-hmm. And so be, just being very aware of what you choose, but yeah. You know, in, ambition. You know, I would imagine it is a big theme in in the choices that you've you've made. You're a very ambitious person. You know, what about um, investment banking appealed to you? You know, when mm-hmm. you were looking at different career types, you know, what about banking was it that was that was appealing to you? Was it the people mm-hmm. or was it the money mm-hmm. or
2: Mm -hmm. Something else. Yeah, I'll admit I did not know too much about banking when I first joined. Um, I initially heard about it because I was a total nerd, and I ended up joining a business fraternity. Um, Can you hear my dog in the background?
1: Oh, he's just adding to the.
2: Okay, got it. (laughs) Yeah, adding to the flavor. She's very loud. She's actually a very tiny dog, but she really projects, so you can really hear her. I can move her if you want, but no, this is great. This is great. Um. So, okay. So back to your question about why, was it uh, why I chose investment banking? I'm sorry. What
1: was appealing about the career and, you know, exploring?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, you know, back in college, I was a total nerd where um, I joined a business fraternity and that was actually how I initially got exposure to the industry because a few of my friends uh, did investment banking post-college. Um, and I knew I wanted to do something on the business side. I didn't really know what I thought finance was really intriguing. Um, because one, it's a really challenging field and, you know, part of what drives me is I like to tackle the things that are ultra hard. And I was like, well, let's give this a try. Like, it seems really hard. I'll see, you know, like, I don't know what I'm capable of, but I'll go for it and see what happens. Um, so I think that like challenging aspect really drew me to it too. Um, And you know, I'll say the money isn't bad. Like you know, coming out of college, I grew up with a family that didn't have a lot of money. It's nice to have some money, right? I knew I needed to support myself because my family couldn't, Um, and so that all added to the appeal of banking. Um, You know, I I think like reflecting back, um, while banking was really hard, I'm actually really glad I did it because, uh, you know, the environment in banking is super tough. But at the same time, like I really do feel like you get to learn. A lot in a very short period of time. Like the fact that you're working 80, 100 hour weeks means that you're really condensing um, all the work into a very short time period, which means you're able to learn so much more. So while it was super challenging, I'm really glad I did it at the beginning of my career because it kind of forces you to understand what you're capable of because you're like put under so much pressure. Um, and I think that's a really good foundation to have at the very start of your career.
0: Yeah, Susan, that's so interesting because I was contemplating doing a business fraternity in college and just never could go through with the commitment. I was the president of a fraternity at Mizzou and that was taking Mm -hmm. a lot of my involvement, but I had lots of friends at the business school that were in the business fraternities. And I've heard same sentiments of if you haven't had exposure to different types of elements, whether it's marketing, management, finance, being able to just put yourself out there in a new organization to get that exposure, you know, opens up new, new opportunities and new challenges. What about the, you said a good phrase that I really liked. Like I like to tackle things that are difficult. You know, yeah. Walk me through like not a lot of people want to take the, the hard, the hard <laughs> way up. you are like, bring it on. I don't want the easier out.
2: Yeah. If it's not a challenge, I don't want to do it. Um, I don't know. Like that's just kind of been my thing. Like ever since I was young, you know, maybe it's because I, you know, you know, at, as a minority and as a woman, like sometimes people can discount you. I think I really, you know, I really enjoy the challenge of proving people wrong. <laughs> well, that I mean, um,
0: you have that, you have that grit. I mean, you you have yeah. like on the sleeves. You're saying like, hey, I want to prove that not only can I be the best, but I can build and yeah. create. You know, being mm-hmm. in an environment. Um, Mm -hmm. In the venture world, like that's what you're helping people do. You're helping people build and create and like uh, tackling that with that same mindset of like starting a business is so scary to Mm -hmm. a lot of people. And that's, you know, your everyday interaction is talking with people that are trying to fight this impossible.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think that's part of the reason why I'm so drawn to it because you do find people who are there to defy the odds. Like by all means they should fail and they really should because the failure rate for businesses are so, 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 so high, but some people just make it happen. And I'll say like, you know, those people are my people. Like I really enjoy, um, you know, people who also appreciate the challenge the same way that I do. And, you know, I've met a lot of people who have really overcome a lot in order to grow their business. Um, And that's always very, very impressive to me.
1: So, you've had this amazing experience, you know, if we were to rewind 10 or 15 years, would you have been able to visualize where you're, where you're at today or has it evolved more organically where that, that picture of the future has become more visible and clear as you've gotten older and gotten more experience, Or did you know, like Mm -hmm. from when you're like 10, you know, like some Mm -hmm. programmers are like, I knew I wanted to start a business when I was like 10 years old. (laughs) You know, do do you have that, that super long-term vision when, when you Mm -hmm. were younger or has it evolved more organically as you've gotten
2: experience? I can't say I have. And part of that reason is because, um, again, like my family, we have very humble beginnings. Um, and so there was a lot that I didn't get exposure to when I was much younger. I think I've pleasantly surprised myself over time. Um, but yeah, like if I, if you were to rewind back 10 years, like, you know, I, when I was a kid, I didn't really expect myself to get into technology. I always thought it was something that was interesting, but like, I didn't have a lot of exposure to it. And it wasn't until I got into banking that I, I really um, got a feel of the industry and realized how exciting it was. Um, same thing for venture capital, investment banking. Like, I did not know what that was like growing up. Finance, was something that was totally unknown to me because my parents just had zero exposure to it. Um, and it's something that I would really have to give credit to, to my friends and my network, et cetera. Like the people that I've gone to know over time are really the ones who've exposed me to all of these new ideas and new industries and things like that. Like, you know, like, like I mentioned, like if I hadn't joined that business fraternity, I wouldn't even know what banking was. And I wouldn't even know that was an option in terms of what I could do with my career. So I feel like part of, my trajectory in life, part of it is luck. And a lot of it is the people that I knew because they were able to expose me to things that I wasn't familiar with. Um, so, so no, it definitely wasn't planned. Um, but the more that I go on this life journey, the more, you know, the more things kind of seem to fall into place. And, you know, I'm really happy with how it turned out so far because I've been able to learn so much, meet such interesting people and like really dig into markets that are just so interesting.
0: Yeah, Susan, I think a lot of people that listen to the summit that we've heard feedback from kind of fall within that either first job out of college, second job, Mm -hmm. or are kind of mid within their career and and have the mindset of, you know, maybe I would want to start something, but I'm too hesitant because of family that I need to support or the the job security, especially during these times, but Mm -hmm. they have passions that they want to build on the side. And so a a lot of times you get questions of, you know, it's great to hear people that are successful and that have, you know, worked hard, rolled their sleeves and made it, you know, made it through the journey. And I think it'd be helpful to hear, um, your thoughts around, you know, when you were making that switch, uh, yeah. from investment banking into venture and, yeah. and similarly with other startups, like what are some things people can identify and what you did to identify, to build mm-hmm. a strong foundation, to start scaling?
2: Yeah. Um, well, maybe I'll talk first about what I think about how to make it easier to become an entrepreneur. Cause that might be of interest to your audience. But sure. I feel like f- for that, like I would start small, meaning like, don't give up your job just yet. Do something on the side and see how you like it. The hard part is, is that oftentimes you can't really scale until like you give, you know, you spend more time on it, which means that you might have to give up your job. Um, but at the same time, like you can always dabble on the side and see how it goes and just kind of get a feel for whether or not you like it before you jump right in, right? Um, you can also do a lot more research on the market and things like that so that you can feel more comfortable really committing to it before you, you actually do it. So I think there's ways I can get more comfortable with risk. Um, I think that's always the thing that's hardest for people is like, how do I actually make the leap? Because making the leap is ultra, ultra hard because you're giving up like a steady career Um, You might be doing really well in that career, but if it's not truly your passion, and if you really feel like your passion is in becoming an entrepreneur, I mean, I personally think it's best to just pursue it, Um, but I understand that it is, it can be really scary. So I'd say like, start small there, kind of just expose yourself to that world, make sure you really like it, and it's something that you really want to do before you, before you make the leap. Um, So yeah, I mean, like, that's kind of my advice to entrepreneurs who are thinking about it. Um, but in terms of, like, my career and maybe, like, how it relates, you know, I think, the, like I mentioned, the risk part is a really big piece of it, because when we do invest in entrepreneurs, like, you are taking a big risk, right? Like, we're investing millions of dollars into entrepreneurs with really small companies. And again, like, you know, the failure rate for companies, even if they're venture-backed is quite high. And so, like, we also have to do all the work to feel comfortable with an investment. Because oftentimes the companies that we're investing in, they're like series A or series B companies, meaning they might just have 30 employees. They have initial product market fit, but really not a lot of sales. So there's a lot of risk involved. And so what we do is, you know, kind of like what I mentioned, we try to de-risk it as much as possible by really understanding the market, understanding the competition. We usually come up with an investment thesis on why we're investing and we do a lot of work around that. So um, I you know, for investing, I kind of take the same approach try to do risk as much as possible by learning as much as you can.
1: I, I think that's phenomenal, phenomenal mm-hmm. advice. Um, especially about you know, dipping your toe in the water. Yeah, um, you know, some there's so many different personality types in terms of like how they decide and execute. Some people are incredibly decisive, they'll launch right off the edge, and it's in the second nature to them, whereas some people are a little bit more. Risk averse and you know putting the toe in the water to see how cold or warm it is is probably not a bad idea, Mm -hmm. but you know I want to hone in on you know the people component you know because at the core of any business is 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 really people not only people but the quality of the 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 adventure they're about to go on and their connection to one another but also you know tying it back to what you had said earlier about where where you are is also a function of the people that you knew. Mm-hmm. And so part of your job, I would imagine is really assessing, you know, great, great people to invest yeah. in, whether it's your, your, your venture funds, money, or your time and energy building mm-hmm. a personal relationship. Yeah. Um, can you elaborate on that at all? Just like if you yeah. want to go out there, say new transplant, to a new city, for example, you know, how mm-hmm. could you um, give somebody some advice on just getting to know people?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah knowing people is a really big piece of Silicon Valley. And I mean, when I exited banking, while I did grow up in the Bay area and um, did banking in the Bay area, I didn't really have much of a, of a network anymore. Because like I mentioned, like I did not invest in relationships like during the two, two years that I was in investment banking. So I kind of just started from scratch and I really didn't have much of a network uh, in technology at that point. And so I really did have to build my network from scratch. Um, and I'd say like, what really helped me is just being open to everyone and anything really like, I think when you're initially building up a network, you have to give a lot first before you see anything back. Right. Um, and so I would, if anybody, you know, like I would proactively go out and meet people at conferences, industry events, things like that. I would keep in touch. Um, I would ask people out for coffees after I met them for the first time. And, you know, you just kind of start small from there. Um, when people would ping me for things they needed, I always help them out. Usually I got nothing in return, but over time it all kind of comes back. Like it's, it's, it's always surprised me, like how, how connected everything is in the Valley. Um, I'm trying to think if I can think of a good example, like, like, for example, one of my friends in banking that, you know, we used to, that I used to party with because, you know, we, we worked a lot and we needed like an outlet Became an entrepreneur, and you know his company became a super hot company. And part of the reason why we were able to do diligence and like see the company is because we were friends from before. Like things just kind of come back, right? Um, I've gotten intros from friends that I met through random things to you know entrepreneurs I wanted to connect with. Like um, it just you just never know like how people can help you in your network, um, and it is it does sometimes feel really random. But I think the more that you put out into your network the more it kind of gives back to you too but you kind of have to go in with the mindset not expecting anything for it to uh, yield returns like I've also seen people who are very transactional in terms of like how they network how they meet people and people just feel that feel it when you're not being authentic and it feels more transactional and so like you develop less of a relationship less of an authentic relationship and so like if you do ask for things like favors it just it doesn't translate as well so I would say like go out there be open to everything, build as authentic of a relationship as possible, and then kind of go from there.
0: Susan, okay. that, that that parallels so much with some of the previous episodes. And actually the episode we just released uh, yesterday was a recap of, of two of our episodes in networking mm. and, and building a network and putting yourself out there. But being genuine and authentic in that process is so important because to your point, someone can feel if, hey, I just want to, network with Susan because I know I'm going to build a startup one day Mm -hmm. and like I want to have Susan as someone on my radar versus, you know, maybe I do want to build a startup. Susan's been very successful. Look at all the companies that she and her, her team have helped build and scale. It should probably be in my best interest to learn from her. And instead mm-hmm. of just saying, hey, Susan, let's connect. It's, hey, Susan, you know, here are some questions I have about the industry. Can you help point me in the right direction? Great. Yeah. I go out and you answer the questions. I go out and execute, and then I come back with more. Or, hey, if you ever need anything in the restaurant industry, I'm here for you. Let me know if I can answer any questions. And then over time, you post something on LinkedIn, I may comment on that, and then that could spark something. And so mm-hmm. I think it's so important and keep hitting it home that – you know, you need to be genuine and authentic and really be willing to take, you know, a step and be willing to, you know, put yourself in an awkward position that mm-hmm. if you're being open with that, like I tend to find even not in the Valley, but here in Kansas city, throughout the country, people are willing to give out because to your point, it comes mm-hmm. full circle.
2: Yep. That's right. Mm-hmm. So let's go back
0: to, um, you know, the, the startup, the, the startup mindset and atmosphere when, when you're evaluating people that you can tell have that right persona and you're like, the, the team is great, but maybe the product's not, what are yeah. you seeing in those people across, you know, the, the dozens and dozens of companies that you've invested in and scouted? You know, what is that core common theme that you would say is really consistent across the,
2: the teams? Yeah. I think the key is grit. Um, And the reason why I say that is because the startup journey is long and it is painful. Like, as you know, you'll see kind of like the unicorns. You're like, oh, yeah, you know, they had a great journey. No bumps in the road. That is so false. Every company goes through multiple ups and downs and it is freaking hard. There there will always be a point where you're on the verge of quitting and, um, you know, you just can't do it (laughs) because you never know what's around the corner, right? Um, So something that I always look for for entrepreneurs is, you know, how gritty they are. Like, I don't really care what, you know, whether or not they came from the best school or, you know, worked at McKinsey or whatever. Like, they just need to be gritty people. And they also have to be super passionate about the market that they're in. Because, again, it's super hard. Like, if it's something you don't really care about, it's not going to work out.
1: Now, how do you define grit? Or what type of experiences are you looking for Mm -hmm. for that person to have, quote unquote, grit?
2: Yeah. Persistence. It's, I define it as persistence. Um, it is, I think, you know, people have all sorts of different experiences. Everybody can be gritty. I usually like, well, you can, I think it oftentimes will come up in their founding stories, right? Like they discovered the problem somehow. And uh, usually it's a problem that they had. So you can kind of just tell from their founding story, whether or not like, um it it comes from a place where they want they really wanted to solve the problem i mean the other way you can see grid of course is like kind of throughout the startup journey as well so you we we usually invest in companies in the series a that means like they have some customers some revenue it's really hard to sign those first initial customers in fact like i think people will give you know some entrepreneurs will give up because it it is actually really hard to sign you know sign a few initial customers and so like you kind of see it throughout the whole startup journey um, but I'd say like, it is, it is something that, um, it, it's, I don't know, it's kind of hard to like define. Um, but it just, you know, it kind of just comes up in conversation, I would say. And I'll add the other thing too, for a lot of entrepreneurs, um, the key to picking the right investor is being able to connect with that investor. So I think it's also really important to mention that not every investor is a good match for every entrepreneur. And as an entrepreneur, you also have to find, like, the right person for you, meaning, like, it has to be a mutual match. So before entrepreneurs go and accept term sheets, they should always spend a lot of time with with the VCs. Because once you get in business with them, it's really hard to untangle that relationship. And I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs kind of rush into that process. Um, the other reason why I mention it is because oftentimes, as an entrepreneur, you get turned down a lot <laughs> by VCs. And I'll say, like, it's not, it's usually not personal, meaning, like, You'll find the right VC that's a good match for you and you wouldn't want to be stuck with the VCS that's not a good match for you anyways and so you know part of this part of the persistence story is not quitting and just like keep going until you find the right person for you
0: so is, is there ever an end in sight like I, I would see from that mindset that you know sitting from your seat
2: mm-hmm.
0: you would take and and talk to as many you know hungry and, and people with grit. Uh, time over time, year over year. And I was relating this back to the, you know, the podcast of what, what the end goal is, like, is there a, a certain number of financial targets that you need to hit? And then you're like, I'm satisfied. Now I can go do what I want. Or is it all, you know, invest and consult, be on the boards of startups until my, my final days? Like, how, how do you approach that?
2: Oh, meaning like, okay, I just want to make sure I understand your question is your question. When do I feel like I have become successful and I can stop? Is that your question?
0: Well, well I mean, I, I would say you're successful today, but I would say, is there a point where you, you, you're you like, this is enough? Or is it to that grit, like, it's just, you're just going to go nonstop until you say, well, this has been fun. But now, now I'll let others, you know, join in on this.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I don't feel like I should stop. Because <laughs> there's so much more that I could do, Right. Um, And I think a lot of entrepreneurs probably feel that way too, which is why they end up building these very large companies, even though oftentimes they'll get like big acquisition offers and things like that. Um, I think everybody has different motivations. I think for me, like, you know, I'm always curious what I'm capable of. And so like, I kind of keep going, right. Um, The other thing too, is I also want to have some sort of impact in the world and like, I'm not quite satisfied with my current impact in the world. So I'm going to keep going until I feel like I, I do more. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really see an end in sight and um, I'm kind of excited to see what else I can do.
1: So I think that's a phenomenal Mm segue into, you know, what does the, the future look like? for you, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you've got this, this vantage point now, you know, you're Mm -hmm. climbing up this climbing up this mountain and you know, what does, what does that impact on the world look like to you? You know, Mm -hmm. is there, is there a time range that you have, or is there a specific definition of, of, of impact, whether it's people or, or some, some other measure, like what does the future look like for you?
2: Yeah. I mean, um, if I could, if I could see the future, um, That would be really interesting. I would love to do that. But I think for me, I just want to help build some really big companies, you know, big companies that have, um, again, like a meaningful impact on the world. And I mean, okay, the hard part with that is that it's not, I don't directly get to have that impact. I get to support the companies that have that impact. I would be really happy if I could get multiple, if I could help multiple companies just become big, impactful companies um, it's kind of hard to define because, um, you know, like I do want to have as many as possible. Like I don't have like a goal of like 10 IPO companies in mind, but I do want to help as many as I can. So.
0: Susan, do you think people, and, and I sometimes when I grow up growing up, have the mindset of, you know, I would love to sit on the other side of the table and mm-hmm. whether be an angel investor or go work for a big VC, but I, I know mm-hmm. that I went to a public university with a undergrad in business management and, you know, yeah. I've worked in the startup life myself, but maybe feel that like I'm not qualified enough and maybe people that, you know, did get their degree, but don't think that they would qualify to either be that entrepreneur or if they do think they are try yeah. to be on the other side, what advice would you have for those people or, or encouragement that they can, you know, go to the other side of the table uh, eventually?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think I have necessarily have the qualifications either, right? I also went to a public university. I went to Cal. Um, while I did investment banking, you know, it's m- not a Goldman. Um, I'm not, I don't really have the same credentials as some of my peers per se, um, but I don't think that's necessary. I think the, I think the, to do, to do venture well, you have to be able to spot trends and then somehow pick the best companies, right? That's the key. And I think a lot of people can demonstrate that in a variety of different ways. Um, I'd say for venture firms, like that's, those are kind of the key things you're looking for. I think there's less focus on, you know, whether or not you have the right, you know, went to the right school, have the right background, et cetera. I think people are more open-minded again, like the key is making sure like people can um, like you understand markets, you can pick the right companies and the ways that people could do that to kind of demonstrate that would be, Like it could be just in the public markets, for example. Like if you have a portfolio and you made X amount of returns over time, I would say that's pretty impressive, right? And if you do score an interview and part of scoring an interview is working your network, making sure you're talking to the right people, making sure that people introduce you to VCs so that like when an opportunity comes up, you do hear about it. Um, If you can demonstrate that you're a good investor like via your public portfolio, I think people would totally respect that, right? Like it's the same process. Um, the private investing process is very similar to the public investing process, where you go deep on markets, understand the value of the company, select the right companies, right? The other thing you could do that's more widely available to more people nowadays is do angel investing. You could there's startups everywhere. People are building it everywhere, um, across the U.S., across the world, etc. You can also ne- network your way into um, Becoming an angel investor at different startups. And if you're good at selecting the right companies, I'm sure a lot of venture funds will take a look at that too. And say like, hey, like if they can select the right um, angel investments, they can probably do a pretty good job at our fund as well. So I actually wouldn't worry too much about like having the right background, the right pedigree to get into a venture fund. I would, I would spend more time focusing on um, being a good investor. And like, you know, maybe you'll realize I, you don't actually need a venture fund. You could just do angel investing on your own and do great there and start your own fund or something like that.
1: Dipping the toe in the water. Is there like a,
2: (laughs) is, is there like a minimum threshold? Like, let's just say
0: I, I am young. Like, can I do stuff with a thousand bucks, 5,000 bucks, 10,000 bucks? Like how much should I be saving as, as a, and asking for for the the other fellow climbers like if i'm scoping this myself and know this is a passion you know what would you recommend as like a good starting foothold
2: yeah that's a good question um well i think the key is to well you don't want to lose all of your money um with risky assets right because if you are doing angel investing It's going to take 10 plus years before you get your money back, most likely. And so you're going to have to be able to handle that time frame. So I definitely would not dump my entire life savings into angel investing because you just don't know. Um, The time horizon is very long and it's super risky as an asset class as well. So I'd say like people just need to figure out what percentage of their portfolio they're willing to take a lot of risk on. Um, You know, it could be 50%, you know, it probably varies from person to person and what the retirement horizon looks like. Um, but I would just figure out what percentage of your portfolio you feel comfortable, you know, taking your risk on and then going with that. Um, but I think at this point, like, because there are so many resources available, it doesn't really matter like how much money you decide to invest because there's lots of pla- you know different platforms out there, or you can choose to invest a smaller amount, whatever into these different platforms where, you know, the total amount is not as meaningful. Like, of course, you're not going to be able to write a million dollar check, but like, who cares? Right. At the end of the day, like, what really matters is what your return looks like. And you can start, you can start like, you know, with a thousand dollars, it doesn't really matter.
1: So that is, you know, I think that's definitely gonna be inspiring for some people to hear, knowing that the mm-hmm. barrier to entry is is probably less than what they've um, anticipated it to be. And I think that mm-hmm. can actually get people over the hump of taking some action to advance their their knowledge or their insights in that, in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, kind of switching gears a little bit, you know, but on a similar topic around like picking things, do you have, do you have a criteria for like when you were going into venture or even into, into banking, you know, you'd mentioned, you know, there's the ability to learn rapidly. The money is obviously appealing, Mm -hmm. but do you have a specific decision-making process when you're looking at, you know, not so much investments, but Mm -hmm. like career type decisions where it's like, Hey, this could be a, a make or break. Um, fork in the road for my career. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: And, you know, do I just roll the dice, you know, throw it on the <laughs> table or, you know, should I be a little bit more methodical about it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think you can kind of tell what my um, strategy for these things are like, because I like to de-risk as much as possible. So first thing I always do is do a ton of research, right? Try to learn as much as I can about whatever decision I'm trying to make, Usually I'll do a pro and con list and then like you spend time like really like in the weeds there to make the best choice possible. But at the end of the day like you kind of just have to go with your gut. Your gut kind of knows like what's right for you and what's not. And a lot of these decisions are very personal. And I mean one way that I could one one way that I would would recommend like really understanding what your gut feels is just like imagining like closing your eyes and playing out both scenarios in your head and then like seeing how you feel. Cuz you'll be able to feel in your body what the right choice is for you. So being very like first doing a lot of research, being very methodical and then going with your gut after doing all that research.
0: Well, Susan, this is, this has been great. One new way that we're looking to, you know, conclude our episodes is talk about, you know, an industry trend and or a business that you're really fascinated with. And so I think Mm -hmm. you could probably go deep in both of those ways, but um, I'm really curious to see either or pick them. uh, What's fascinating
2: you right now? Yeah, um, that is a good question. I'd say one market I'm digging into is tools for the CFO. So I think part of this also comes from my banking experience because in banking, we spend a lot of time using spreadsheets and Excel to do all sorts of analysis. The problem with the finance department right now is that they do the same thing I do, which is they use a lot of Excel and a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of manual work, right? I I think there needs to be a lot more automation in the finance department. I also think that, you know, In the finance department, there's a lot of disparate systems. There has to be a lot more integration as well. So what I'm looking forward to is, I'd love to see more entrepreneurs build for the finance department. It's been one of those departments where there hasn't been a lot of technological innovation. But if you look at the public markets, there are a lot of really, really large public companies that, uh, that are like part of this like quote finance stack. I don't know, for some weird reason, there just hasn't been a lot of innovation in this space. So I'd love to see more companies being built here replacing Excel, building in more integrations. Um, so that's a market I'm super excited about. Um, can, I, can I list a couple just cause like this is what I do. Yeah, go for job. it. Yeah, this is great. Yeah. I think, I think yeah. this is fantastic. So the other area I think is also, I'll, I'll do two more. So one area I think is um, super interesting too, is this whole shift to working from home. I think it's going to be, it's it's, it's going to have a more permanent change to, um, how we work and all of that, and anytime there's a big shift in the market like this, you're going to need new tools, right, uh, to help people collaborate, stay in touch, etc. So, I'm we're already seeing a lot of companies building in this market, but nobody has really cracked it yet. So, I'm excited to see more companies here. I think one problem that hasn't really been um, addressed yet is how to kind of keep that like casual dialogue that kind of happens in person, really authentically in the office, you know. Right now, I think people do a lot of official meetings. You do a lot of Zoom meetings, but it's all super scheduled. How do you kind of just have like those quick touches? Like, you know, it just doesn't really happen anymore. And it's something that's really missing. Um, And then also like, you know, how do you think about management, promotion, things like that? There's a lot that's like changing um, given now that everybody's working from home. And then like the last thing I'll mention is I think the food space really needs to be disrupted. I'm just going to plug my boyfriend's company really quickly. He's actually working on like a healthy instant noodle. And I think it's really fascinating because growing up, I used to really love instant noodles. But as you guys know, it's super unhealthy for you. So what he's doing is that he's building a more like complete meal where, you know, it has it's super high in protein, low in sodium, doesn't have all that bad stuff for you. But it's just like quick and easy. Um, I think it could potentially be something that's super disruptive. So. I think there's a lot happening in the food tech space as well.
1: Very cool. Yeah. Well, you know, on, on that note, I just want to say thank you because it's been an amazing dialogue and I'm sure that anybody listening to this is going to get more than one nugget of, of, of wisdom. I've got a bunch written down. So <laughs> just wanted to say, you know, thankful. You. Thank you. Of course. Uh, yeah. You know, we're grateful you came on board and, Glad you were able to share some
2: awesome wisdom. Yeah, it's great talking to you both.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you have questions, feedback, and ideas for future episodes, please email us at summitpodcasts at gmail.com. Again, that's summitpodcastplural plural, at gmail.com. Or message us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Summit Podcasts. Thanks so much, and keep on climbing.